whether you cross illegally or you cross through one of these legal, they call it lawful pathways measures, CBP-1, mm-hmm. um, you're pretty much guaranteed to get in. If you have a criminal history, um, you can run and and get in that way because there's really no border patrol anymore doing on the line because they're so busy processing all the other ones that you can just easily run and get in. And so we've had this record smashing number of gotaways about 1.8 million, I think by now, at least, uh, in addition to all the ones that we gave the stamp papers and the stamp to. So it's also really, and that's a, that's a really big record, uh, number. Uh, so one way or another, there's like three or four or five different ways to get in, uh, and stay in. Howdy, everyone, and welcome back to Moment of Truth, the podcast of American Moment. My name is Saurabh Sharma. I'm the president of American Moment. And this week, it's just me nerding out about one of my favorite topics, immigration. Uh, Before I get to who exactly we had on today, as always, be sure to go to AmericanMoment.org. There you can find everything that we have cooking as an organization, ranging from the backlog of this podcast, which has over 120 episodes, truly hundreds of hours of content, um, as well as all of our programs. You can find Foundations of American Statecraft, our training series for interns, AM Fridays, which is a lunch series on Capitol Hill this fall. You can find Frontiers of American Statecraft, our advanced policy programs, Fellowship for American Statecraft where we pay and place people on Capitol Hill and in allied public policy organizations and much, much more. Our programs are expanding all the time and stay up to date with them by going to AmericanMoment.org and subscribing to our newsletter, which will start being issued soon enough, I think. Um, And of course, go to AmericanMoment.org slash join. I literally just walked out of a meeting where someone had filled out that form, had been listening to the podcast for years, and we are now going to immediately get to work getting him involved in a major, in this case, foreign policy role here in Washington, D.C. Someone who had been out of the game for a little bit, had gotten his master's degree a couple of years ago, working at a security firm in town, and, and wants to get in the fight now. These are the kinds of people that we especially want to pull into the fight people who um, have a little bit of knowledge about something they really care about or none it's fine we can train you up um, but want to immediately get involved in the fight so be sure to go to americanmoment.org slash join Um, this week i had the unique pleasure of having on todd bensman who is the center for immigration studies texas-based senior national security fellow he is the author of Overrun, How Joe Biden Unleashed the Greatest Border Crisis in U.S. History and America's Covert Border War, the untold story of the nation's battle to prevent jihadist infiltration. Prior to joining CIS in August 2018, Benzman led Homeland Security Intelligence efforts for nine years in the public sector, and his body of work with policy and intelligence operations is founded on more than 20 years of experience as an award-winning journalist covering national security topics with particular focus on the border. He's written for Dallas Morning News, CBS, Hearst Newspapers. Um, he has a uh, undergraduate degree in journalism from Northern Arizona University and a master's degree from the University of Missouri School of Journalism. He is fantastic. Look, there's a lot of useless journalists on the center right, people who just sort of regurgitate 600 words of copy uh, based on what someone else did, usually a liberal journalist. Uh, Todd is one of the few people out there hybridizing the work of a think tank scholar and a real journalist finding out what's actually going on in this country. He's done groundbreaking reporting on the border. His books are actually worth reading. He's just stellar. And we spent an hour talking about everything under the sun about our border crisis, whether it's Title 42 and its aftermath, why migrants are being uh, you know flown in planes and put up in hotels in our biggest cities, uh, what's going on with that giant, uh, basically favela in Texas that's being built for to house hundreds of thousands of illegal aliens, and so much more. It was an absolutely fantastic episode. I highly recommend that you guys listen all the way to the end. So we'll go now to Todd Bensman. Todd, thank you for coming on the podcast. Great to be here. Thank you. We always like to hear about how our guests got to where they are today. I think the path to becoming uh, one of the great voices on the immigration issue in our time has to be an interesting one. Tell us, how did you end up covering this this ignoble area of policy. (laughs) Uh, It's a long trail. Um, I am a recovering journalist. I was a reporter for 
23 years, uh, ending in about 2009, and which dates me, I realize. Uh, but then um, after my uh, newspaper career, it's mostly newspaper uh, for publications like the Dallas Morning News and Hearst and like just regular mainstream traditional legacy media, I was recruited to join the Texas Department of Public Safety's Intelligence and Counterterrorism Division. Uh, it sounded interesting. And um, so I said, okay, and went to work for uh, the state police doing counterterrorism for 10 years. Uh, so after about 10 years, I got a call from um, the Center for Immigration Studies and um, they had a pretty good offer. It sounded interesting. I got to stay in Texas. I got to write again, publish again. And in 2018, I took them up on it. And I've been here ever since. So they haven't fired me yet. And and how many books have you gotten out in that time? Uh, I got two books. Yeah. Um, uh, America's Covert Border War in 2021, which is um, substantially based on work that I did in the intelligence division at DPS about uh, immigrants who are coming from nations of national security concern over the border uh, and what we do about that and um, some of the close calls we've had and how the programs that are in place have kept the country safe from an attack on that, mm -hmm. from that, some of the things we were doing. During your newspaper career, did you have a ton of visibility or interest in the immigration issue or is that something that came later? Uh, a little bit. Uh, it was a little bit later. Um, I I was covering um, national security uh, for the Dallas Morning News after 9-11. And then I took a, an investigative reporter job in uh, South Texas for Hearst Newspapers. And in 2006, and the hottest thing going in, that, in those days was the Mexican Civil Drug War, uh, which was killing you know, hundreds of thousands of Mexicans. Uh, it's a slaughterhouse down there. And my job was, you can do whatever you want. Pick your story. And that was the sexiest story going down mm -hmm. there. And so I just started covering the border. I don't speak Spanish. I'd have to have translators. But um, I did, you know, multi-part investigative pieces on like gun smuggling and uh, maybe the most notably, uh, the one that was that maybe got me to the attention of the Texas Department of Public Safety was on how uh, migrants from special interest countries like Iraq, Syria, Jordan, Lebanon, all those places, Saudi Arabia, Afghanistan, were somehow making it over the southern border into Texas. A uh, five-part series on that uh, really kind of opened me up in the immigration space topic space um so uh yeah i did have a lot of experience with it uh toward the end of my career did you ever feel like you were not safe covering <laughs> that as a journalist journalists today love to i mean pretend like you know every single thing they write is a defense of democracy and that you know fascists around the corner trying to kill them for reporting on mean tweets any moment you know but yeah. it, it, what was what was your threat calibration I mean, at that point in time. I, I always try to mitigate risk, you know, lower the threat, make sure I'm not doing anything too crazy. Uh, but, you know, you can't cover that story unless you go over to Mexico. Yeah. And you can't go over to Mexico without the um, an elevation of personal security risk. You just can't get away from it. That's the way it is. Um, but, you know, I would just endeavor to uh, get the job done quickly and get out just what I needed to get done. Uh, there were times where I got nervous, but you know, nothing bad happened back in those days. I have had more recently some things happen uh, covering the border, but I try to, you know, get in, get out, make sure that you're not doing anything over completely stupid. I always figure if I get killed or uh, kidnapped or something bad happens to me down there that it it would be by the most fluky luck thing on there mm -hmm. you know for them that it would just be this mm -hmm. nothing that i couldn't that i um couldn't have done to avoid it you know mm -hmm. and so you started at cis in 2019 you said. 2018 2018 yeah so most of your public facing career um in this era has been during the biden administration but you've got a, a tiny glimpse 
of what things might have been like before. Paint that picture for me. What was it like when you first started at CIS, um, the state of the situation at the American southern border, and how far have we fallen? Right. Well, obviously, the Trump administration uh, was uh, working policy down there. Uh, in 2018, toward the end of 2018, they, there was a swell, uh, what I would call a swell. At that time, it was a very significant spike in apprehensions. It was all fueled by the discovery of a loophole, uh, the, the wider discovery. The loophole had been there a few years that allowed family groups to be released within 20 days. And when it had been around since 2015, but it for different reasons, and I outline all that in the book, it became known that uh, if you came in as a family, they couldn't hold you. The Americans couldn't hold you for longer than it's called the Flores settlement. Mm -hmm. uh, I call it just the Flores loophole. It's still there uh, that you could be released in short order. So why not? And so yeah. uh, the Trump administration was bedeviled by that uh, very significant mass migration uh, crisis. But I was also there for when he implemented policies like remain in Mexico, safe third country uh, for asylum seekers. If you pass through a safe third country, you can't apply for asylum in the U.S. Uh, and then eventually Title 42. I did go to the border a lot during that period asking immigrants, hey, how do you feel about this new Trump thing that they just got you on? Um, we're going home. We never should have come. So the numbers dive bombed. He got it under control by the end of um, by probably by uh, May, June of 2019. Mm -hmm. It was over. He brought it to a swift end uh, with policy, with just policy. And one of the things that I learned uh, during that period is that that the immigrants really pay a lot of, they pay very close attention to policy way more than any average american mm -hmm. way more than even a lot of think tank people that i know <laughs> they would be great to have in a think tank <laughs> those guys on immigration because they just know everything well that'd be the best way to get dc right size and immigration policy is to do a visa program just for think tank scholars i think that'd yeah be great. Exactly. <laughs> Open borders uh, only for public intellectuals. <laughs> by the time the Biden administration came in, uh, you know, Trump had bequeathed probably the safest, most secure border in the history uh, of the country. I mean, it was down at, you know, 20,000, 30,000 apprehensions a month, which sounds like a lot. But the context of today is 200,000 every month. So, you know, 20, 30,000 is like the good old days. Uh, so that's Biden came in. He had he had really low apprehension numbers. He had Title 42 was in place, too. Uh, but even before Title 42, Trump's policies had gotten really wrestled that monster down to the ground and had it pinned up. So walk me through what exactly did the Biden administration do upon taking office that has caused the situation at the border to degenerate so badly? Yeah. So the first thing. Uh, is remember Title 42 was in place. Trump was, that's that's the pushback policy. So everybody that crossed that got caught was taken right to a port of entry and pushed back into Mexico. Mexico had to take them. Mexico didn't want to take any of them because it cost them money and they're stuck in their country and they have to deal with it and children and the whole thing. Nobody wanted that hot potato. Uh, but on the day of the inauguration, uh, they put into place exemptions for family units. Again, um, Trump was pushing back, I think about 90%, 87% of everybody they caught. Um, the Biden administration opened up the exemption for family groups and by day, by inauguration day plus one, it was on. Tens of thousands flooding through over the border. Uh, and then unaccompanied minors. Trump had been pushing back unaccompanied minors. Uh, the Biden administration said out loud over and over again, we will turn no child back to Mexico to starve to death or be killed or whatever it was. Um, as though a modern oil state uh, couldn't take care of kids somehow. Mm -hmm. 
uh, they had been taking care of kids just fine. Uh, and then pregnant women who were about seven months pregnant. Those three groups, between those three groups, it was on massive numbers. Uh, within a month or two, it was, you know, 150,000, then 170,000, then 200,000. And it just kept escalating from there. That's what happened. There was one other thing that happened uh, that's a little bit more complicated, but um, the Mexican Congress uh, pushed by the Mexican president, his party, uh, when they saw that the Americans had selected uh, Joe Biden or that Joe Biden was going to be seated uh, as president, they, within uh, 48 hours, passed a law that prevented Mexico from detaining families, migrant families, immigrant uh, unaccompanied minors, pregnant women, <laughs> like they no longer. And so so they waited for after till they found out who was president and passed this law very quietly, stealthily. Um, and that went into effect 60 days after the American election so that the Trump administration had no time to stop it or do anything about it. The gates all opened in the Mexican detention centers, uh, 58 of them emptied out all to the border, and they were waiting there on inauguration day for the exemptions for families pregnant women, unaccompanied minors. So between the Mexican Congress and whoever was orchestrating this on the on the uh, Biden side, the policies perfectly matched, created these massive alleys, uh, freeways, I guess, and they poured in uh, on inauguration day, plus one, plus two, plus three, and, and so forth. Walk me through what the Mexican incentives in the border crisis are. One of the most striking visual things that people bring up all the time is that Mexico and the U.S. share a pretty long border. The southern border of Mexico is very short. And Mexicans themselves don't migrate to the United States at the rate that they used to. And so if you combine these different logical elements together, one could assume, well, if you get the Mexican incentives right, there would be no border crisis. Why doesn't it work that way? What do the Mexicans want? The Mexicans want what every country wants, every rational country wants, which is to not have a massive number of foreign nationals on their soil that they have to take care of or who are creating uh, unrest and disturbances and um, are a political problem, domestic political problem in the cities and in the, the states and then the larger. That's what they want. They don't want, it's really not what they want, it's what they don't want. It's in their national interest to make sure that these people pass through or maybe don't come at all, but uh, at the very least to just move on through and become the U.S. problem. That is the Mexican national interest in a nutshell. Um, the Trump administration managed to give them a better national interest for us. The better national interest was uh, we are going to inflict progressive trade tariffs on you and your economy up to 28% on every product that crosses into the U.S. if you don't take all these migrants back and block them at your border in the first place. Now, all of a sudden, the Mexicans had a real national interest, uh, which is to survive, to have a, an economy that would just simply survive Donald Trump. And so they responded rationally. They put National Guard at their, at their southern border with Guatemala. They started massive deportations of Central Americans. Uh, they were paying for it. They were busing them back. Uh, and so that's why the numbers at our border were so low by the time Biden got in is because uh, between the policies of pushbacks, uh, Trump policies and pushbacks and the Mexican policies of deportations, nobody wanted to come for the great Mexican dream. That's not nobody comes for that. So they stayed home. Yeah, that's why the numbers were so low. One of the inflection points uh, that people talk about all the time, and I'm curious if you think it's perhaps overrated, was the expiration of Title 42 that happened a couple of months ago. Before and after, how does the border look different since that policy officially expired? So the administration's 
primary, the Biden administration's primary objective, according to them, over and over repeatedly, is twofold. One, they don't want vast congregations of stuck migrants all along the border in fetid camps uh, that have to be all taken care of uh, for weeks and months at a time. They don't want that visual. It's a terrible political optic. That is like their number one driving factor. Remember the Del Rio migrant camp in uh, of the 15,000 Haitians a couple of years ago? Uh, they learned their lesson there. And after they managed to liquidate that camp, it was like never again. So the, the plan was to um, hand out entry permits to the migrants while they were still in Mexico and beyond and bring them in over the ports of entry in an orderly, safe, humane way. I say safe, orderly, humane lawful pathways is actually the name that they give to their strategy safe orderly humane not stop block deter go home get out of here but we will bring you all in eventually just in a nice orderly way so that there's no big del rio migrant camp so Mm -hmm. they came up with this app a cell phone app you make a reservation while you're in Mexico and then you wait your turn and you'll be called. You can walk right across the port of entry to a U.S. customs officer who will then stamp some papers and have you out into America to, you know, report in for duty later uh, to an ICE officer. So they figured, well, uh, if we do it this way, it's legal. We've legalized all these people that would have crossed illegally um, nobody can see it. It's like invisible. Uh, and the numbers of people that are crossing illegally are going way down because by the, by the same amount that they're bringing in through the ports, through the land ports. So it's like kind of this shifty kind of shell game thing, you know, where, you know, the, they've got a bean under three cups and they're like this and they <laughs> pull up two of the cups and go, look, it's all good. And then don't worry about this other cup with the bean under it, yeah. you know. So that's kind of what they what they did. And to incentivize uh, people to migrants to do that, um, they came up with a plan that they said was going to be really Trumpian harsh, really mean sticks, baseball bats, uh, kind of mean policy, Trump policies. Uh, we're going to do expedited removal if we catch you crossing illegally. You have to go back and go through this CBP-1 app. Um, We will maybe prosecute you. We will uh, put a ban on you for five years. You can't ever even enter under any program. Uh, We're going to um, turn you down for asylum automatically uh, and, 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 and deport you if you don't do it this way. Uh, and so that was kind of why uh, the numbers seemed to fall off a cliff right after the end of Title 42. They were bragging. They were taking uh, victory laps, spiking the football all along the victory lap and saying, look how the numbers are way down. It's really working. But turns out that it was just, <laughs> again, the bean game that you're talking about. I'm curious, just for some table stakes math on this, um, how long... Is the typical migrant having to wait in Mexico before the app lets them in? And then after they've been admitted to the U.S., how far in the future is the time at which they're supposed to come report to an ICE officer or for a hearing? Right. Uh, yeah. So the the length of time in line has been an extending, expanding number mm-hmm. because this thing is so popular Every, they're letting everybody in. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, if you just do this thing, they're just we get in. You don't even have to pay a smuggler or a, a, a fee to the cartel to cross. Mm-hmm. This is fantastic. So the entire world is coming for it. The problem with that is because it's so popular, it's smothering on its own popularity. The length of time is, you know, could be weeks. It could be a couple of months. It could be a few months. Mm-hmm. Um and then, you know, you're just sort of, if you don't have much money, you're kind of like in for a tough time because you didn't budget for three months. You budgeted for 
two weeks initially, mm-hmm. but the line got really long. Um, and so, of course, the thing, the whole scheme has started to collapse. And what we're, that's what we're seeing now. The scheme, as of today, as this podcast, the scheme is in full-blown collapse because the bats and sticks and terrible Trumpian things that they were promising to do to keep people in the line, they just reneged on. They're not doing any of it. Uh, If you cross illegally, instead of doing it the permit way, they let you in anyway. They let everybody in. The Mm -hmm. family groups, the unaccompanied minors, even the single adults, they're letting them stay. Um, uh, To the extent that there has been some kind of pushbacks, it's only saying it's only because they've got this new scheme where they said you can withdraw your claim and we'll put you in the front of the CVP one line, mm-hmm. and we'll you'll just come in that way. Mm-hmm. So they get in one way or another. Everybody knows it. Mm-hmm. The result is uh, that you have just this this really historic spike within this historic spike uh, that's going on right now of people from all over the world uh, crossing illegally again. Yesterday was a ten thousand day. Uh, a couple days ago, before that, it was a 14,000 day. These are numbers that we, uh, I think, are in the very, very upper end of the uh, spectrum of of daily mass migration. And the vast majority of these people are taking advantage of our extraordinarily, some would say generous, I would say outdated asylum laws, correct? Well, they're not even most of them are not even being asked to apply for asylum really at okay. all. They're just being like before. It's just like pre-title 42. Um I I haven't met one yet who said, "Oh yeah, I was interviewed for asylum." Um I always ask, "Did anybody ask you anything about asylum?" and they're like, "No, they just stamped our papers." Uh and so we can go in. So it's a real free for all. You want to get into the US, free-for-all. you come in. Everybody gets in. People are still waiting in line for the CBP-1 application because to to finish the answer to your earlier question, uh, one of the great benefits of it is that that if you do, you'll get um, authorized for a work permit right away. That'll go for two years, renewable every two years. So you come in through CBP-1, you report into an ICE office in the city of your choice, uh, and then they will grant you the work authorization papers and then you can get a work permit and you can be you can work legally. They'll give you all the papers you need. Um, then what happens to them after that? We haven't really there's been very little reporting. This has been going on because uh, a lot of them just got one year work permits. Some of some of them got one year. Some of them. So I, I don't really know yet whether the one year permits got renewed Uh or if it's like this indefinite every year they have to be renewed in perpetuity or else we might have to deport you or you can't work. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's kind of an un like this is still so new. We we don't know whether the administration is actually doing renewals. Um, if you apply for asylum in, in that two year period, uh, that does then put you in another queue uh, four years on average to have your case heard. And people that get in that queue also get uh, work authorization. And so I'm guessing that they're moving from the CBP-1 work temporary one to the longer term asylum one. And everybody stays and everybody stays forever. Like you're just not, you're not getting, they start to build equity for four or five years. They've got kids and that are American children. Yeah, they're 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 all just here. Probably about five million so far. And those work permits make it so that you know, suppose we implemented national mandatory e-verify tomorrow, they're not going to get tripped up by the e-verify system because no. they have a work permit. That's right. That's right. Now there probably are a lot that never applied for asylum or won't apply for asylum. They just go into the illegal black market labor market. <clears throat> And are just kind of working, you know, mowing lawns, cleaning houses, maybe using fake IDs, fake, uh, you know, papers to trick employers into hiring them. Um, 
E-Verify is not in force really any, just a couple of states. You know, mm-hmm. Florida, I think, just recently did it. Texas doesn't even do E-Verify. Yeah. So we functionally just have a, a totally open border. It's not Republican advertisement hyperbole to say. I mean, we, we, we don't have an operative immigration policy at this point in time. It's show up and get a fancy piece of paper and goodbye. See you in a few years, maybe. Yeah, I mean, whether you cross illegally or you cross through one of these legal, they call it lawful pathways measures, CBP-1, mm-hmm. um, you're pretty much guaranteed to get in. If you have a criminal history, um, you can run and and get in that way because there's really no border patrol anymore doing on the line because they're so busy processing all the other ones that you can just easily run and get in. And so we've had this record smashing number of gotaways about 1.8 million, I think, by now, at least, uh, in addition to all the ones that we gave the stamp papers and the stamp to. So it's also really, and that's a that's a really big record uh, number. Uh, so one way or another, there's like three or four or five different ways to get in uh, and stay in. That's functionally an open border, in my opinion. Some of your cutting edge reporting is that one of the other ways that the Biden administration is letting people in is by flying them in. That's What's right. going on with that? What have you discovered? Right. Well, the, it's part of the legal pathways strategy to reduce the numbers crossing illegally at the border uh, was a, a one that they call a different kinds of family reunification programs um, that allow they just want to keep people off the border, keep them away even from Mexico. And so they announced a, a series of policies for certain nationalities that were high volume at the border, the highest volumes like Cubans, uh, Haitians, uh, Nicaraguans uh, that were all showing up at the border. The, the way to thin them out is just say, stay home, apply for one of our CBP-1, like our parole uh, permits. And then if we approve you, you can buy an air ticket, an airline ticket on a commercial airline and just fly into the airport of your choice. They announced these things and then never said another word about them. Uh, and so I, I, you know, we saw that, I saw that at the center, uh, and, um, wanted to know, well, how many are they flying directly into the U S that's a fair question. Uh, so I put in a uh, FOIA request and they ignored it and then we had to sue them. So we're in litigation right now over this FOIA request of mine for those numbers. Uh, we did get some of them for four nationalities, the Cubans, the Haitians, the Venezuelans, and the Nicaraguans. Um, and the numbers were stunning, uh, at least to us, uh, just for those four, 221,000. Uh, came in from October to uh, mid-November, flew into 43 different airports in the United States. Now, none of those ever get counted in the monthly tallies. We're about to have one in August come out, like the monthly tallies for August of of illegal entrances. Um, But this is like another 30,000 a month or so. Um, These are just four nationalities. They also did uh, uh, made that available to Ukrainians and to Colombians, to Hondurans, Salvadorans, and Guatemalans. So there are like nine different nationalities. The 221,000 that I'm reporting today is just for four of them. So if we're at 221,000, you can imagine, I mean, there's probably another 100,000 or more. I don't, we don't really know. They will not also uh, let us uh, know which airports. So they're sandbagging on like which airports, and you can imagine why they would want to. So you're seeing New York, uh, you know, stagger under the uh, weight of immigrants that they think are being bussed in, and most a lot of them are bussing in. But I strongly suspect and have been told uh, privately, I don't have it confirmed, but that um, a great many of these are flying into JFK. They're not coming in by bus. They're flying to JFK. 
uh, probably LaGuardia too, and maybe Newark, but um, they won't tell us. So you can imagine um, why they wouldn't want to tell the mayor of New York, who is screaming and yelling every day about this thing. It's destroying New York, that it's not Greg Abbott in Texas who's busing them. It's Joe Biden who is authorizing these flights uh, that are that are uh, helping you along in your problem. Same with any state uh, or city that is staggering under this burden. 43 airports in the interior of the U.S. unknown what those airports are. I strongly suspect uh, JFK. I strongly suspect Miami uh, is probably one of the, the big, big ones for the Cubans and the Haitians uh, and even the Venezuelans, too, that are just pouring in, being flown into the airports. You can't see it. It's incredible. One of the things that right-wing media has picked up on occasionally uh, is that there are vast amounts of migrants being kept in hotels in major yeah. urban areas. What's the story there? What? Why is our government paying for these people to be put up in hotels? Well, there's nowhere to put them. And the alternative is to have TV cameras panning over thousands and thousands of immigrants who are sleeping in the streets. So um, it's better to um, spend yourself into oblivion if you're a politician in charge of a democratic city than to be uh, cast as inhumane and cruel. So it's uh, the cities that are paying for these hotels in most cases. Yes. I see. Yeah. Although um, I, I'm not sure how the path, I think there may be federal pass through FEMA uh, money may be passing through. Don't, I don't know exactly how much or in what, but I, it may not strictly be. But the fact of the matter is, is that uh, some of these mayors are demanding federal bailouts. So whatever money is coming from the feds is, you know, grossly insufficient from their point of view. Mm -hmm. um, and interestingly, they never say anything like, um, hey, can you shut the spigot off at the border? <laughs> it's just give me more mops to clean it up. You're not giving me enough mops. Give me more mops to clean up this uh, flood. Uh, instead of like, hey, uh, honey, can you just like turn the spigot off yeah, outside? Maybe build the, a uh, dam. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Have you noticed any of the blue state mayors or the blue city mayors starting to change their tone at all? I mean, it does feel like we're in a slightly different rhetorical mode um, than we were two years ago. Um, they at least can't ignore the problem the way they used to. Are you seeing any change in behavior or tone? I think yes, from the from the noisiest of the squeaky wheels, like the mayor of New York, uh, you're starting to see them say like I, I actually heard him say get the border under control at one point he said that and then like oh yeah that was like the only time it yeah, was the black like, helicopter one, started circling right. it was one time he said that yeah uh but i i strongly suspect that there are you know a hundred more mayors that are suffering in silence they just they they will not um smack the democratic party in the face publicly but this is not just happening in New York and Boston and Washington and Chicago and Denver. Uh, this is happening all over America. Akron, Ohio, uh, Nebraska, uh, the Dakotas, uh, the West Coast, the East Coast, everywhere in between. Uh, you you got to put five million people somewhere. You can't just they're not all going to four cities. Uh, and uh, there's just not nobody saying anything. I think that there's a lot of this going on. One story that you've reported on, and that's getting a ton of attention these last few weeks, is that occasionally vast numbers of these illegal migrants are just kept in one place. There's a big um, sort of what looks like an open air community in Texas um, that, that you've reported on and others have as well. What is that? What did you find? How'd you find it? And what's going on? So that's Liberty County, Texas. You're talking about Colony Ridge, or if you say it in Spanish, Colonia Ridge, um, because it's uh, kind of fashioned after the old style colonias, uh, these kind of like um, bare knuckles, you know, settlements that crop up on unincorporated territory along the border within 100 miles of the border. But this is 300 miles from the border in the interior of a Republican, like a very blood red state. Texas. 
this started about uh, maybe 10 years ago, uh, where a land developer uh, came up with this idea that there is demand for illegal immigrants, among Ill illegal immigrants, to buy land and own a home. And if I purchase, you know, 10,000 acres of forest land, I can resell it in parcels of a quarter or three quarters acre uh, and finance it to them myself so that they don't have to go to uh, a bank for a mortgage that requires a history of legal income, uh, credit ratings and, you know, IDs and all the normal things that you and I would have to produce if we were applying for a bank loan. Mm -hmm. um, if it's the owner selling it to you, he can make whatever terms he wants mm -hmm. and doesn't need to ask for even ID, which they don't want. They, they do, I'm sure. But um, that's what happened. Uh, the marketing was all in Spanish language. Uh, it was internet marketing. So that means by definition, it's uh, international marketing. And the, 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 the key message of the marketing was you can own land in the United States. Uh, just come out here to Liberty County and we'll cut you a deal for a few hundred dollars. You can have a piece of land. Now, um, there's apparently nothing illegal about that. You can do that. They charge, you can charge uh, whatever interest you want, I guess. Um, so for, for, for the lack of credit rating or income history, you have to pay 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15% interest, depending on how long the loan is. But it still works out better for a lot of them. Uh, and that's what happened. They, they had this niche. There was this demand. They sold a ton of land. You can build whatever you want on the land. There's no code enforcement. There's no uh, Are homeowners. most people building like mobile homes or what are they putting uh, in there? I'd say most everything I see out there is like single wide and double wide mobile homes. But, you know, you could see ramshackle th dwellings that were built with like leftover scrap material. You can see tents, tarps. Uh, beautiful brick homes in some areas that are just really nice, beautiful, well-appointed uh, homes. Um, it's really just kind of a gamut, but the the majority of it uh, is going to be kind of the ramshackle variety, mm -hmm. uh, you know, where you can, it's a do-it-yourself kind of a thing. There's an appeal to that. Uh, and when you um, spend time out there on the ground, like I have, you you talk to people, they'll tell you that, we believe that most everybody here is illegal. And I've actually interviewed people who are illegal, who's told me they were illegal, who bought land and showed me their mortgage documents. Um, so, you know, it's an unusual uh, place. I don't know if this has been replicated in a lot of other places, but like I said, if you have 5 million uh, illegal immigrants who just crossed the border or, or people that were briefly legalized, but will at some point soon will become illegal and aren't going to leave. You have this option if you're working and you, you don't want to lose your, uh, your investment. Uh, you just keep, keep paying on it and you've got a place. Mm -hmm. The other, the other sort of appeal of the community, according to the immigrants is that, ICE won't go anywhere near there. Why? I don't know. Even under Trump, nobody would go in there. We feel safe here. Uh, everybody knows that they're not going to come deport you here. And this Long, is an unincorporated county, so they don't have police or fire. There, there's a there's a, a, a county sheriff, uh, and Colony Ridge has funded, paid for uh, a number of bilingual officers to patrol, um, but it's still pretty thin. And, you know, ICE won't go in there. Um, and it's, it's, I regard it as a no-go zone, as a safe zone, as like the ultimate sanctuary city. Uh, because for years and years, you know. It's a the, foreign settlement. It's, yeah, it's kind of a foreign, it's a foreign settlement where the people feel like, you know, we don't have to worry. They're not going to come get us. They're not going to find my bad driver, my fake driver's license and my fake registration for the car. Um, 
and like turn me into ice or or even do anything about it. They're just like, yeah, yeah, we know everybody's like that. Everybody's like that. How does the economics of this work? Do they work in neighboring farms or do they drive into the city? So this What's- is yeah, this is this uh, community is about forty miles northeast of Houston. I see, which is a megalopolis with a lot of construction work. And a few years ago, there was a hurricane, Hurricane Ike, or Harvey came through and devastated the uh, city. And there was a lot of work to rebuild it. And um, there's plenty of work in in Texas near Houston. Mm-hmm. So I think that's what, what where, how most of them subsist. Interesting. Tell me about the gentleman who runs this uh, tenement camp. Uh, he's a big Republican donor, right? Very politically connected. Yeah, that's the uh, Harris family, Trey Harris, John Harris. Uh, they're from a, a pretty storied family, as far as I can tell. They, um, they're a family of uh, boxers, of professional boxers, who have been like, you know, I think um, one of them fought, uh, I don't want to say uh, which one, but like you know, some famous boxers like yeah. of that, of the 60s, 50s and 60s. And, um, you know, they're from a town called Cut and Shoot. One of my favorite names for a Texas town. Um, you know, they're businessmen. They came up with this idea. It appears to be legal. Uh, and, uh, the, you know, they they um, donate to uh, Republican candidates. They seem to be Republicans. Um, but of, of a certain kind of Republican that maybe doesn't mind uh, having a big cheap labor force. Uh, there is a strand of Republican of the of the party of of the of, uh, under the umbrella that really kind of likes having a lot of um, cheap labor and you know they own ranches and farms and um, furniture stores that uh, you know can sell stuff to people that are putting little homes together out there and it's an economic jo- juggernaut um, so I mean. I've been asked if like maybe there's something ideological about the family or, or, or something like that. But I mean, I think they're just business people mm-hmm. making, making a profit. Are they, are they double dipping? Do they have businesses where they take advantage of this labor pool that they're helping create and concentrate? I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, my, my main focus was less the uh, family and their motivations than the outcome, mm-hmm. which is that law enforcement tells me that because there is such thin federal presence there and because uh, and state presence uh, and because um, there's not a ton of uh, law enforcement around there that the uh, Mexican cartels have moved in there. They feel free to operate. I assume there's a ton of drug production going on in there. Uh, yeah, there's drugs uh, that get caught. I mean, just a couple weeks ago, they... They pulled a truck over that had 26 kilos of uh, cocaine in it, you know, and it's like out in the middle of nowhere near near this community. Uh, we don't know where it came from, but there's like, you know, murders and, uh, you know, gun battles. And, um, you know, there there are uh, giant marijuana grows and uh, gambling operations and prostitution rings, according to local law enforcement um, to me. That's a national security problem, regardless of how the business model developed and got them all there and continues to get them all there. Uh, you know, it needs to be policed. Yeah. Uh, that it's you can't just ignore what's going on right in front of you like they have for so long. And I would imagine that even the uh, land, the developer would fully agree with me Who who wouldn't. Who wouldn't agree with that? Um, but the um, I have reached out to them, and uh, you know they don't want to talk to me. But they have talked, and they you know they take great issue with the way uh, their communities being characterized <laughs> as a colonia. It's like the biggest illegal immigrant yeah. settlement in America, et cetera. They disagree with all importing of that. the Brazilian favela model, basically. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, um, you know, it seems like this is an invasion. <laughs> do you characterize it as such? Do you think that it's useful for us to use that terminology to describe what's happening at the you know, border? I, I think that 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 the the term invasion is very specific to 
the policy dispute over uh, whether Greg Abbott should have or Carrie Lake should have declared uh, a Title X invasion so that then it would entitle the states to round up immigrants and Mm -hmm. deport them. Those guys were trying to say it's an invasion. Declare it. Mm -hmm. Declare it. Uh, So, you know, unless I'm talking about that. I don't tend to use it because to me it's it's only useful in that context, mm-hmm. right? Uh, the Title Ten yeah. debate, which is over. When you talk to law enforcement, um, ICE, CBP, Border Patrol, everyone, what's their temperature these days? Um, one of the things that really concerns me, um, and I believe the same about general policing in the United States, is that we are demoralizing. Um, an entire profession that keeps the country safe and also basically ensuring that the pipeline of people choosing that profession is attenuating as rapidly as possible and that we could enter a world where we have a tenth as many police officers in 20 years, not because the left banned being a police officer, but because no one wants to become one. I mean, a few years ago when they talked about Border Patrol, uh, you would hear them say, yeah, Border Patrol, the 20,000 strong, you know, agency that's down on the border. And just the other day, I heard them say somebody referred to it as the 15,000 strong agency down on the border. And I think I know why, because mm-hmm. uh, I'm hanging out with those guys all the time. And uh, the closest sort of uh, parallel uh, that I could metaphor, I guess I might make about them is, is it'd be like um, Navy SEALs, a team that trained to uh, for battle and the war comes along and they get sent to the back to the rear echelons to guard the cafeteria. <laughs> right. And that's what it's like. These guys are, are trained to chase, interdict, find the dope. Uh, catch the immigrants that are sneaking through. Uh, you know, they carry guns. They've got all kinds of training. They, you know, they're on horseback and they've got ATVs and choppers and predator. You know, they got drones and everything, of all these tools and everything. But um, in 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 the Biden uh, era, they they have largely been ordered to process in all of these immigrants, uh, and the duty is just boring. And it's it's also uh, humiliating. I, fi- I find that they are humiliated. Like deep down, they're just like you're. You know, we we don't want you on the front line doing you know battle because you're kind of like you know we we don't want to do battle. So it's not really their fault, but you know it's not the job they signed up for. And so there's a lot of. Um, you know, moaning and groaning and complaining. And, you know, I didn't sign up for this. Like, you know, you spend, you know, a couple of weeks ago, I was out in uh, Fronton, Roma, Texas, a remote area. And, you know, what, what the action was there every night is, you know, 500 immigrants would cross over and turn themselves in to the Border Patrol because they know the Border Patrol is going to say right this way, we're going to process you in. Here's your paperwork. Let me take your picture. Um, you know, ask you a couple of questions. We'll put you on the bus. We'll guard you. Then we'll release you into the public. And that's just not what they signed up for. But that's what most of them did all night long. I think I was there for three or four Impotent nights. caretaker is not the job you sign up for. When they're you Walmart greeters. They're, wall, they're gun-carrying Walmart greeters. They're like, you know... Uh, Barney Fife's that don't even get the one bullet, you know. It's amazing, and they hate it. Yeah, it, they hate it. It it seems fundamentally unsustainable, and and I think it is. You know, we might get a different president in twenty twenty five. Might even be a Democrat. RFK talks interestingly about the border. New president of the United States calls you up and says, "Todd, what do I got to do? How do I triage this situation?" Walk me through what are steps one, two, three, four, and five to fix this situation, get it under control, stuff that the president can do alone. The first thing is reinstate remain in Mexico. That was the single most uh, productive policy. And 
it's been completely vetted legally all the way to the Supreme Court, which said that policy is perfectly fine. Mm -hmm. And in fact, it's in place even now. They just don't use it. Um, the, The brilliance of Remain in Mexico is that it hits right squarely on uh, an immigrant uh, calculus mm-hmm. of should I stay or should I go like that song, you know? Um, and so the, they're always asking, should I stay or should I go? And remain in Mexico tells them I should stay. I am totally staying. I am like never going because it costs $10,000 for, to move a family from Honduras a whole family all the way to the uh, U.S. border and then over it so that you can get processed in, guaranteed processed in. So um, these people don't have $10,000. They are borrowing it uh, or they're selling everything they own. They're selling their house, their whatever property they have, maybe the, the car, the television, everything they have to raise the money to pay a smuggler. If you're going to do, if you or me or anybody I know is going to raise a fortune to do a trip like that, the only thing that you need to know is, am I going to get in and stay in? That's it. You're going to stay home if you're not getting in, if you're not going to get in and you're going to go if you know you're going to get in. That's it. It's Mm -hmm. that simple. That's how it's, there's nothing more complicated. There's no root causes or Mm -hmm. any of that. It's just... Wow, if I drop that kind of cash, am I going to be able to get it and pay it off? Mm. So what Remain in Mexico does is it it guarantees that they're it's not going to pay off. So they're not going to bother. They're going to stay home. Uh, so Remain in Mexico is very important. The other one that's very important is one that the administration claims it, the Biden administration just reinstituted, which is safe uh, third country. If we find that you crossed through uh, one of these safe countries and didn't apply for asylum there, you're ineligible automatically to play, apply for asylum here. So I would I would advocate that the Republican administration keep that. That's a good Biden policy if it's enforced. Mm-hmm. It was a great by uh, Trump policy because it was enforced. The Biden administration is not enforcing it at all. Mm-hmm. Like, as far as I can tell, not even one time. Um, and that plays out just in terms of the guidance that the processing agents are given in terms of what to ask. I'm assuming they just don't ask that question anymore because if they did, they'd have to. Well, I have asked countless immigrants that have been released after Border Patrol uh, you know, two weeks ago, I spent an entire day at the McAllen bus station mm-hmm. where, where it's filled with people that have been released. They've got their papers, their little folders, and they're going to Chicago or whatever. Mm-hmm. I always ask, well, did they ask you anything about asylum? Did they ask you about the country you crossed into? And the answer is always no. I haven't yet found evidence that anybody follows any of these policies. Mm-hmm. But a Republican administration would just follow the policy. It would completely work. That's why the ACLU sued the Biden government. Mm. They're so scared of this policy because it is so it works so well. Uh, And it's been vetted by uh, in in, in, uh, all the courts. So those are two things that they that would probably shut it down immediately within a day or two. Mm -hmm. Um, The the people that are coming. The other thing is that. um, um. you would have to force the Mexicans to have a new national interest, mm. just like Trump did. Remember, Trump said, I'm, I will destroy your economy if you don't do our bidding on this stuff. Uh, so do that. Tell the Mexicans you're taking them back. You don't have the option of picking and choosing who you're not going to mm. take back like they are now. Uh, you're going to take them all back or these are the consequences. And between those three things, you could shut this thing down on uh, Republican inauguration day plus two. Wow. I think it would be over. And then when it comes time to do more permanent legislative fixes, what's your guidance to Congress? Permanent fixes is that the asylum law has to be uh, tweaked. That doesn't even need to be 
tweak that much. There's a, there's a mm-hmm. couple of little things. Uh, the first one is that that um, if you cross, this would be in Boston, the law. If you cross a safe other country uh, and don't apply for asylum there, you are ineligible automatically. You cannot even claim it. Or if you already have asylum in a third country, because like huge numbers of those who claim asylum now already have it in two or three other countries. Mm-hmm. Some of them have residency in for eight years in safe other countries. Mm-hmm. Um, you can't, you're ineligible to even apply. You just can't even apply. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's important because but the act of claiming asylum and applying for it gets them it's a it's a it's a work around the law, which is that you will be detained and deported mm-hmm. unless you've applied for asylum. Mm-hmm. So if you can't apply for asylum, that escape hatches over. Yeah. The other thing is that um, uh, the Flores settlement loophole that I talked about before, uh, Trump came this close to finishing it and then it ran out of time. Uh, that has to that has to go. Uh, that just simply has to go because we have to have the ability to detain families in a deterring for deterring lengths of time. Mm-hmm. And, right and this now, is the, what became kids in cages. Uh, sort of. I mean, that was that was a different policy. Um, but, you know, even that policy probably would be unnecessary uh, because if, if you could just turn people back under remain in Mexico, I said it before, nobody and I mean, but nobody is coming for the great Mexican dream. They're not going to get caught, stop short in Mexico and then be like, oh, this is pretty good. Mm-hmm. This is a good second choice. Uh, unless they're actually facing the extraordinarily high bar that people assume asylees have for, you know, the violence they're facing back home or something like that. Right. Uh, you know, they're they're. You know, there are processes in place for those, but it's moot Mm -hmm. if you have been living in Chile for eight years Mm -hmm. and have residency or you have Mexican asylum. Mm -hmm. Like, okay, great. Uh, I'm glad that you that you're not in your home nation of um, Cameroon. Mm -hmm. You're good now. Yeah. Todd. What should people be paying attention to on this issue? It feels like immigration is in the news all the time, but there's a little bit of signal and there's a lot of noise. What's your sort of recommendation to our listeners on on how to keep their eye on the ball in that field? Honestly, I think I think the the thing that I would tell people to pay attention the most to the most are the the facts on the ground as to whether we are letting them in. That's what every immigrant that I've ever met pays attention to. I say, let's pay attention to what they pay attention to, Mm. and we're good. They pay attention to, did my neighbor, relative, uh, husband, son, cousin, uh, guy I met in the camp, uh, and uh, now I have his uh, WhatsApp, uh, did they just get let in? And are they in Chicago sending selfies back? happily from the um from the fancy hotel uh if that's happening you can expect this thing to roll on and roar in uh this human wave and that's how you can tell what's going on if you're in one of these cities uh and you are mad and a lot of constituencies in these cities are northern cities are extremely upset um you should be looking at whether uh, the, these people got in because they were let in. Uh, and then your city is giving them everything that they could ever imagine. So I'm telling you from, 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 I mean, I don't know what you do about that. What do you starve them in the streets? We're kind of obligated at this point, uh, to, you know, uh, but maybe we don't have to give them so much yeah. that it's just this wonderful experience for them, uh, that there, the, there are people south of the border that tell me I want to go to New York because they're staying in really nice hotels for as long as they want. And they're getting all the food that they need. And my kids are in school and the cities are giving them everything. Once the government lets them in, 
So it's like a perfect storm. Mm-hmm. So keep your eye on that. Like, why are they coming? They're coming because we're letting them in and giving them everything. Uh, the thing to do maybe to stop them from coming is not let them in and not give them anything when they come in or give them just the bare essentials. Don't make it so wonderful, you know? Yeah. That makes all the sense in the world. Todd, where can people keep up with everything that you're writing and reporting on uh, and the fantastic work that you're doing? Uh, right. So, you know, I'm on all the usual uh, social media. I've got uh, Bensman Todd at Twitter, or I think it's X now. And um, I'm on Getter, T. Bensman Getter and Truth Social. Uh, my book is Overrun, How Joe Biden Unleashed the Greatest Border Crisis in U.S. History. And that's available Anywhere books are sold, they're in bookstores on Amazon and Barnes and Noble and all the rest. Fantastic. Thank you. We need more people reporting on this stuff. You're the best there is. Uh, Thank you for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Hopefully you guys enjoyed that. We certainly enjoyed taping it. As always, be sure to rate and review this podcast five stars only. You can do so on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Be sure to subscribe. We've seen a big spike in subscribers lately. The David Goldman episode really popped off. Um, Hopefully it's not just Chinese spies that are watching. Um, And be sure to tune in next week. We're always grateful to have you guys listen every single day. I'm, I'm, finding moment of truth listeners around this country, um, people who are intimately involved in politics or want to be. And that's exactly who this show is for, forwarded to a friend. And we will see you guys next week. Moment of Truth is an American Moment Studios production filmed at the Conservative Partnership Center. Our podcast is produced and edited by Jake Mercier and Jared Cummings. Our intro music is A Minor Struggle by Ryan Serenich. Don't forget to like and subscribe on all platforms, and you can go to AmericanMoment.org to learn more.